Good morning, and welcome to another episode of Crime Over Coffee. We're your hosts. I'm Erica. And I'm Abby. And today I'm going to be telling you part one about the murder of Carla Brown. Today, I am drinking two things, because I'm me. I've got a Keurig hazelnut coffee. Hazelbutt. And, yeah. And I've got this strawberry mango lemonade that I got from this like flea market where this lady was selling fruit infused lemonades well that's fun i also have a cucumber ginger one and they're divine i'm not a cucumber gal well figure it out (laughs) what are you drinking i am drinking pumpkin coffee with pumpkin almond milk creamer in it because it is fall and you can't tell me otherwise i also bought a pumpkin yesterday and some pumpkin donuts so we're all in i second this motion i also got to pet some goats which was fantastic also have some news since this is the first time we're recording post this uh i am engaged what i had no idea somebody actually wants to marry me believe it or not don't say anything mean in the comments guys (laughs) everybody's just like i am okay guys we are very excited yeah I'm pumped. And that's why we went yesterday to celebrate and I pet goats and got a pumpkin and it was fantastic. So now we have an engagement pumpkin. But I don't know why. I just wanted a pumpkin, really. I <laughs> think that that's totally fantastic. So yeah. I agree. Cheers to pumpkins. All right. Cheers to being engaged yeah. to an okay human. That too, I guess, but mostly the pumpkin thing. If the pumpkin's the big yeah. thing here. Yeah. All right. So pour yourselves a cup or a mug or a glass of whatever you're drinking and let's dive in We will continue on with our content for this week's episode shortly, but first we wanted to take a moment to let you know about an opportunity to listen to even more Crime Over Coffee content. By signing up for our Patreon, you can receive ad-free episodes and additional content. To check out this opportunity and sign up for the Crime Over Coffee Patreon, visit www.patreon.com slash crimeovercoffeepod. Thank you again for all of your support. Carla Lou Brown was born to Floyd Elvis Brown and Joe Ellen Brown in Lima in Allen County, Ohio, on February 8th, 1956. She attended Roxana High School and graduated in 1975. And in 1978, she had moved to Wood River, Illinois. She, at this time, was 23 years old and had just been moving in with her boyfriend, Mark, and they'd been together about five years. This was their first time living together, and they actually went in and bought the house together, which was a pretty big deal. They weren't married yet. Again, this is in the 70s, so it was was a really big step for them, and they were really excited about it. They lived in this really cute neighborhood. It was a little ways away from St. Louis. She was known as a very independent person, very strong. She was in all kinds of clubs and activities in high school. She's relatively popular, known as a very beautiful young woman. I'm specifically calling that out just because that plays into the story a little bit later as well. At the time, she was attending college and was working at IHOP as a waitress. Mark had 
been in the service previously and he was currently an apprentice in construction. From all accounts, their relationship was pretty good. They were on the up and up. They were very happy. They were settling down and everything seemed good. On June 21st, 1978, around 11.24 a.m., Mark leaves to head into work and Carla's home for the day. She's still unpacking. They're getting their house together because they just moved in relatively recently. And so Mark goes to work and about six hours later, he comes home and he had brought his friend Tom home because he wanted to see the new house. And they get there and the door is unlocked and they go in and he's kind of calling for Carla. Like, where are you, honey? Like, he's calling. He's not hearing anything. He's starting to get concerned. And so they go into the basement And from what I could tell, their basement was getting set up as kind of a living room situation. They had a TV down there, a couch, table. Um, I'm not sure the exact layout of the house, but it seemed like that was a normal spot to be. But when he goes down there to his horror, he unfortunately finds Carla's body. He sees that the basement's in disarray. There's blood all over. Some of the seat cushions from the couch have been moved. There is a TV tray that was on the floor and he sees that Carla is tied up. Her hands were tied behind her back and her head and waist had been dunked in a bucket of water that was right there. And he immediately pulls her out of it and he's freaking out. And Tom goes ahead and calls 911. You said her head and her waist were in the bucket? Head, like waist I said dunked. I think her head was what was like left in there though. Okay, so head was in the water, yeah. but like she was dunked yeah. down to her waist. Got it. Okay. I was it just was a little mucky. I was like, I'm trying to when I was listening to it too. Well, I was trying to picture how just her head and her waist were in this bucket of water. Her legs were out, basically. Yes. I'm caught up. It sounds like it wasn't just a tussle that was going on downstairs. It sounds like somebody purposefully went in there with the intention of murdering her. With the fact that she was, her wrists were tied behind her back and then she was dunked and I assume drowned. I guess you haven't really, we haven't gotten there yet, but it seems just very intentional, not like an accidental death. Absolutely. To further that point, they also, when they arrive, they immediately have crime scene specialists come in and they're looking. And in addition to what I had said, Carla also was naked from the waist down. And she had two men's socks tied in a knot around her neck. Her back was tied with white electrical wire. And they had noted at the time that they were pretty sure her death was by strangulation. They start looking around and they don't see any sign of a break in. So they think that the person maybe was someone Carla knew and she had let in or the door was just unlocked and they just kind of walked in. I feel like there's a few things in the situation that are making the husband look a little sketchy thus far. I know obviously we always tend to look at the significant other first anyways, but the fact that it was in the house, she prop there was no forced break at entry, so somebody either had a key or she let them in. I am curious because you said that there were men's socks around her neck. Did those belong to her husband or were they able to find anything to prove that they weren't? And you can get there later if you need to. I don't want to rush you. These are just my thoughts. I can answer that now just because I don't know. Um, I'm assuming they probably weren't able to tell. Um, It wasn't something noted or called out at all. Another thing they indicated is that there was water with blood kind of near the sofa and that there was a coffee pot from upstairs that was down there. And they think that maybe the person had brought water down to try to clean 
it's at this point that investigators are like, all right, who do we, who could have been involved? We need to start asking questions. And to Erica's point, you know, there was um, a documentary I watched about this and the crime scene investigator was talking and he made a comment. He said, before we start looking at outlaws, we always start looking at in-laws, talking about oftentimes the perpetrator is someone closest. And so they do immediately look into Mark. Carla's family is notified. They're unfortunately a little ways away from Wood River at the time. And so they're kind of getting just a mix of Carla's dead, but they're not sure what's happening. And in one of the interviews with her sister, it sounded kind of, it's it's all awful, obviously, but this is something I didn't think about until she was talking about it at the time they didn't really have cell phones. And so they're having to stop at places on the way on pay phones and try to call and get information. She was talking about like how horrible that was, waiting to get there to figure out what's going on. That is something that I don't always think about because, I mean, Abby and I were born in the mid 90s. And so, I mean, from a young age, we didn't really have cell phones, but all of our adult life, we've had cell phones. So it's always something in my mind. And my first thought is, well, pick up the cell phone and call. So... That is extremely unfortunate. I'm sure obviously added a lot of stress to them in this whole situation. And along the same vein, I mean, I know we've covered cases where a family member or somebody gets murdered or goes missing when they're in a different country or a different continent. And I can't even imagine that kind of stress to not at least be right there asking questions and being involved. Before the break, I mentioned they were going to look into Mark, which is a natural thing to do. However, they are very quickly able to remove him from the suspect list. He was at a job site all day, um, it was about 20 miles away, and he was consistently with coworkers. There was never a time where he was by himself. So they pretty quickly were like, all right, it obviously wasn't Mark, he's accounted for. So now we need to start looking out a little bit further. I think it's, he's kind of lucky that he had a really solid alibi in this situation and that people were able to corroborate his story and be like, yep, he was with us the whole day. Mm-hmm, absolutely. And you know, something that's kind of crazy is this is a pretty extreme murder that happened during the day. And police and investigators are like, that's, it's bold. That's a very bold thing to happen. And so they're thinking, you know, it's during the day, somebody around here had to have seen or heard something. So they start canvassing the neighborhood and talking to people. And there was a house that was just next door and police are talking to the gentleman that lived there. And he said him and his friend were on the porch all afternoon. They were just kind of hanging out, drinking beer and smoking. And they said they didn't hear or see anything. And police are like, wow, okay. So not only is this bold, they're getting information from people around that nothing was even heard or nothing weird was coming up. Which I think once again, goes back to that point of she most likely knew her attacker. And so there was no reason for anybody to notice anything because she wasn't screaming or seeking help outside when they were she was letting them into the house. As they're canvassing, by happenstance, they actually run into a woman who used to live in the house that Carla and Mark had just purchased. And she had been driving through there around this time. And she was actually, she had her grandson with her and they were heading to the dentist. And so they drove by and the grandma kind of pulled in and was like, oh, let's like just pull in and see our old house. And so they started to pull in the driveway and she reports that she actually saw Carla outside in the driveway arguing with a man who was a kind of general size and shape, but had long hair and a beard. That's a kind of crazy happenstance that that was the moment in time that they drove by. There's an interview with the grandson. He's older during the time of this 
um, documentary. I think his name is Eric. I don't know. Don't quote me on that. But he was talking about how crazy it was that that happened because how often do you even go to the dentist? You know, he said once a year. It depends, obviously. But it was almost like they were meant to see that. And it was kind of crazy that it worked out that way because now they have a general description and they know that somebody had at least popped by and Carla was having some type of conversation with them that seemed to be heated. As investigators continue to look into this and talk to Carla's friends and family, they do find out that Carla actually was on the phone with a friend. And while they were on the phone, Carla was saying, oh, somebody's knocking on the door. Let me call you back. She never calls back. And sometime during the day as well, one of Carla's friends had actually stopped by the house to visit and she knocked and there was an answer and she didn't see anybody. And so she left as well. And with all of this information accompanied to when Mark left, they determined that it was very likely that Carla was killed around noon. Once again, very helpful information to have it all narrowed down and just have it, you know, she's on the phone so they can say it was after that, but probably before her friend stopped by. And so it's a really nice narrow timeline that's going to probably be, or at least hopefully be very helpful in solving this case. At this point, investigators decide they need to start branching out and seeing if there's any other suspects that they need to be looking into. When police are looking into who could potentially be a suspect in Carla's murder, they find out a name from some of Carla's friends, and that person is Jack Myers. I guess it was just someone who they'd run into a few times. I don't know if they were really that close friends with him, but they did note that he would hit on Carla often and ask her out and make advances, and Carla never really reciprocated that, and they thought he was kind of sketchy enough that they wanted to look into it. And so they do look into Jack. He takes a polygraph and passes. And at this point, they're kind of like, well, we have to keep looking for something more concrete. And so they kind of let that go. Then they find out that Carla had a stepdad, ex-stepdad now, named Joe Shepard. And I guess it was a pretty toxic relationship that Joe had had with Carla's mother. And he was known to be not very nice and additionally Carla's friends reported that they thought he was really mean and they were really uncomfortable around him one of her friends said it went as far as him making some type of sexual advance towards her and she was obviously very uncomfortable with this and please think hey that's a probably something we need to look into however they have no direct evidence or connection to put Joe with Carla that day. And so they decided to kind of take him off the list. From what I understand, they had a lot of people where it was like this, where there were some weird interactions or somebody thought they were a little sketchy or had made advances towards Carla that she didn't reciprocate. But again, they didn't have anything concrete to hold on any of these people. And because they had so many they were looking into, they were marking people off the list pretty pretty quickly if they had nothing to keep them there. That's the thing. I mean, there are so many creepy people in the world or just gross people that, you know, you don't really feel like associating with. But that doesn't necessarily mean that they murdered her or like would murder you. So it does make it hard. Yeah, absolutely. And something, you know, earlier I mentioned talking about 
she was known to be a very beautiful woman. And because of this, a lot of people that were interviewed, like her family and friends, say that it wasn't uncommon for guys to be making advances to her, for guys to be making advances towards her. Now, investigators are kind of taking a step back going, where where can we go with this at this point? They're hitting these dead ends. They do happen upon somebody who seems pretty suspicious though. Apparently at the time of Carla's murder, there were a lot of other crimes that were sex related happening in the area and they were pretty sure they had a serial rapist on their hands. There was even a point where the police chief actually resigned because it was rumored that he had been hiding some of these sexual assaults and attempted rapes for one reason or another. Shortly after Carla's murder, a few houses down the road, somebody broke in and ended up sexually assaulting a woman. And she called the police and she was able to identify this person as Tony Garza. And so police decide, all right, well, obviously we're picking him up for this crime, but we need to see if he has anything to do with Carla's murder. It's good to see that they are continuing to go down all these different avenues and that they didn't just try to pin it on one person from the beginning. It's also very nice to know that they have multiple options to look through and that it's not like they're not at a dead end yet. They've had, I don't even know how many people, I think you've mentioned at least five or 10 people and they're still just finding more people to be interviewing and asking for the questions just to rule them out. Which is rare in some of these cases. They were certainly doing their due diligence. I know there was some dust up between the family and the um, police department because they thought they should be really reaching outward and getting some outside help, maybe from the FBI or something. But at this point, police are just investigating it on their own. They talk with Tony and he does admit to being responsible for some of the sexual assaults that happened in the area. However, he does say, I did not attack Carla, I did not murder her and I have nothing to do with it. However, he does kind of match the general description they have of the guy that Carla was seen interacting with. And additionally, later on when Tony is in jail, some of his cellmates claim that he actually confessed to Carla's murder. However, when investigators look further into it, they say that the statements didn't really match up and that they really thought it might've just been for attention. I guess some of the facts of the case he was sharing didn't match. I was thinking about that. That seems like a pretty good alibi or like way to avoid suspicion. I think it's safe to assume that if you sexually assault and murder someone, you're probably not above lying to save your own butt. Correct. And then pretending like you have something wrong in the case, like making a little slip up here or there, is definitely, you're right, I would agree. I don't remember if you said, but were there any signs of sexual assault on Carla? Yeah, I think they, they, you know, they never concretely said it, but... Yes. I mean, she was nude from the waist down, and I assume that was kind of the assumption. They just didn't outwardly say it um, in the articles and stuff I read. Okay. Because it's completely normal for escalation, but I would still expect a serial rapist to go back to that base point. Sure. Kind of. And that's, you know, an interesting point when you're considering Tony Garza as well, is that the reason he got picked up was because he assaulted a woman but he didn't murder her and she went to police and so it leaves them to think hey maybe there is another person in the area that is responsible for some of these assaults and it maybe escalated up to the murder of Carla which 
is kind of horrifying for this small town too. The idea that there's a serial rapist and killer who isn't afraid to attack at noon during the day. Um, I'm sure everybody was very on edge in the community. And they, they're they kind of backtracking, seeing who they could look into. And so they decide to look further into the neighbor because they were sitting outside. And this was, their names were John Pranty and Dwayne Conway. And they're starting to be a little concerned with them because they are thinking, you're right beside this house. How did you not hear or see anything? And police suggest they're a little skeeved out by it. So they ask them to take polygraph test and you know we're in the 70s this is very much still used as a like i don't know the right word fail safe kind of deal where if they pass it they're almost like all right you're good to go and if you don't they're going to try to nail you for it really i mean they're looking at these as fact and as we know now they're not admissible in court nonetheless this is what they do back then and john pranty does pass it but when they are giving the test to Dwayne conway He was apparently just so shaken up by everything that the administrator was just like, I, I don't know. I can't identify if he's passing or failing because it's all a mess because he was so worked up about it, which, you know, doesn't look great. It doesn't look great, but it, we've talked about it before and it's the big reason why they aren't admissible in court is because it's based on your heart rate and your like all these different levels and stuff and if you're in a super stressful situation it's going to mimic very similarly to when you're lying and so it's really hard to tell the difference between the two if i was brought in by somebody that was like hey i think you murdered somebody i'd be like okay i mean i didn't but like that's slightly nerve-wracking and i'm probably gonna fail the polygraph i get anxious enough just going to like the dentist so i can't even imagine what mine would look like (laughs) but also that's a good alibi too (laughs) At this point, police are looking into everything they can, but they're really struggling to get anything concrete to connect somebody to this murder. And it's at this point that they just run out of leads and Carla's murder becomes a little bit of a cold case. Join us next week when we continue to talk about this case and some developments that happen a few years after the murder. Thanks to listening to this week's episode of Crime Over Coffee. You can find us on Instagram at Crime Over Coffee or on Facebook at Crime Over Coffee Podcast, where all of our photo and video content for each episode can be found. You can also email us your thoughts and case suggestions at crimeovercoffeepod at outlook.com. All of our sources can be found in the show notes for each episode. If you would like, you can support us by going to anchor.fm slash crimeovercoffee. You can also support us by recommending us to friends and family, giving us a good review on Apple Podcasts, or subscribing to us on your favorite podcast listening platform. Thanks again, and we'll see you next time.